if you want your startup to succeed, ah, there's some horrible sacrifices, horrible sacrifices in the first few years to get it to the place where it's going to survive. Welcome back to Series 10 of 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led entrepreneurs to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today's 40 Minute Mentor is Sanjay Lobo, MBE founder and CEO of OnHand, the all-in-one tool for corporate volunteering and sustainability action. Dubbed the Uber for volunteering, OnHand was launched in 2019 and has since grown from helping a few people in London to helping tens of thousands all across the UK. The app is now used by hundreds of businesses, giving their employees an easy way to help tackle some of the biggest issues facing society today. Many of you will have come across Sanjay and on hand in the most recent series of the popular BBC TV show Dragon's Den, where he secured funding from four out of five dragons. That is some accomplishment. I am super excited to have Sanjay join us for this series of 40 Minute Mentor and can't wait to dig into his journey with On Hand to date and also hear a bit about his aspirations for the future. So Sanjay, welcome to 40 Minute Mentor. I am a huge advocate for all things tech for good and you are leading the charge on that with your startup On Hand. So I'm pumped to have you on the podcast. How are you doing? Really good. Uh, Thanks for having me, James. And thanks for all the kind words. Uh, Delighted to hear all of that. (laughs) It's a real pleasure. Well, we're going to get you warmed up with some quick fire questions as we usually do. So please finish the following sentences after me. Number one, I grew up wanting to be... Uh, I was thinking about this earlier. Shaken Stevens, like for most people won't know him. He's, I guess, a cheap imitation of Elvis Presley. I remember growing up in the 1980s and he was on Top of the Pops. People won't remember that show either. But uh, yeah, I was head to toe in denim with a plastic toy guitar trying to be this rock star actually i probably want to be i still want to be a rock star i guess love that and, and that is a first for the podcast i love all firsts and shaken stevens has not been <laughs> not been one of them so far <laughs> okay number two the last time i was scared was when probably in the last 24 hours i have a 11 year old at home who likes hiding around the house and then jumps out at me and almost every time <laughs> i jump almost every time oh goodness yeah it's entertaining, isn't it? All your kids think it's entertaining. They don't realize that they're going to give you a heart attack. <laughs> okay, number three, the most memorable day in my career was? Probably back in the 1990s when I was a trainee lawyer. Um, and I invited the whole company to my first um, performance review. I was new to email. <laughs> All fun. <laughs> love that, love that. My biggest failure to date is? Probably not being retired. So I'm in my late 40s at this point. Uh, Startup stuff is really hard. It's really, really hard work. I didn't mean to be working this hard in my 40s, but hey, loving it, absolutely loving it. But um, one day retirement would be nice. If there was one thing I could change about entrepreneurship, it would be? Making it much more accessible, much earlier in people's lives. Go from personal experience to that. I'm, I'm in my 40s, perhaps very early in career, could have looked at doing something different and taking the risk to do a startup. But then there's a massive gap in your life where actually you've got other responsibilities and it's very, very hard to actually start up something by yourself. So how do you create that opportunity for folks at a much younger age? That's a gap. So Sanjay, before we dive into On Hand, I'd love to go back in time and find a bit more about your upbringing, uh, what it was like, 
And I'd also love to know, like, where did that entrepreneurial spirit come from? Was that always there? Or is that something that came as your career developed? If I look back over growing up and stuff, I I was born and raised in a place called Tooting in South London. For folks that don't know, Tooting's quite a nice area these days. It's got all its coffee shops and all that kind of stuff. But back in the 1980s, it wasn't wasn't quite like that. Uh, Tooting was... um, Fairly rough area. I went to school in an area next door called Mitcham. Mitcham was probably an even rougher area. Hey, with no disrespect to the careers that folks went on to do, that the expectation was, hey, you'd be a brickie or you'd be a bus driver or, or something along those lines, right? Um, it was a tough place to grow up. And for me, I think growing up was about escaping that scenario. And um, my brother went to work at the local McDonald's. It was, you know, that was where you were expected to get to, right? And so I worked my ass off. Really did. I really worked my ass off. And I think my mum was great in that period. So my mum and dad got divorced when I was very young. She was, you know, the breadwinner, not making much money as a nursery worker. But she did lots of things to try and help during that period, like what schools we went to. I went to a local school to start with. And then she got me into, a, I guess, a religious boys' school in Wimbledon for high school, where I did really well. You know, the hard work paid off for me to get great A-levels, which led me to a you know, great university, University College London uh, doing law. So that that's it. Your life's going to be transformed from that moment onwards. Entrepreneurship, probably later, I think growing up, really didn't see or didn't have those kind of mentors or people in your life that were, hey, wow, look what they're doing. I think I had one, which was my best friend's brother had a t-shirt stall on Camden Market. And that was just like ultra cool. And it's like, how's he doing that? And he was into designing t-shirts and all of this other stuff. That was maybe a, a kernel of interest in doing your own thing from a very young age. But that entrepreneurship piece then came a bit later. Some parts of the career, I started a fairly entrepreneurial law firm, but then ended up at lastminute.com where I was late to the party at lastminute.com. It was post a lot of the heyday stuff. But the sense of what they'd achieved and how they got there and the stories of back in the day just permeated that place. And so that startup bug probably started then. I was lucky to move to and live in Barcelona for about five years. And there... Almost everyone I met was an entrepreneur, and that was it. It was it just sparked the idea: you can do your own thing, you can have a great life, you have so much control over what happens, and it felt much more doable. So, yeah, there's a few different pieces that came together. You've navigated kind of the, going from a solicitor to then exec roles at LastMinute.com, and then Vista, and, and clearly that entrepreneurial bug was just kind of growing within you. I guess I would love to pivots are a theme that come up on this podcast quite a lot, and you've clearly successfully pivoted sort of a, a number of times. So maybe if we start at the pivot from law to, to the tech industry, how did you do that? And how did you find that pivot? And do you have any advice for anyone else listening to this, any other lawyers that might be listening about how you successfully made that transition? I started a law firm called Oswang, they're part of CMS Canada now, but they were a very cool law firm who kind of were one of the first to say this internet thing is going to be massive. That's back in the 1990s, late 1990s was when I joined them. And they, they just got that their digital disruption was going to be huge. And so I was involved in tech deals, even as a trainee solicitor there, fundraising rounds, um, M&A type stuff. And from there, the big jump and the big transition point was to go in-house. So I went in-house for a travel company that owned, um, they're called Sabre. They owned Travelocity, which was a massive online travel agency in the US, smaller in Europe. But because they were smaller in Europe, they decided to buy lastminute.com. Right time, right place. I've been there five odd years, working really hard for them. But the guy that was running legal at lastminute.com decided to leave as part of the acquisition process. And so I was given the top job over at lastminute.com to run run legal there. And that's when I guess I started seeing 
different aspects of businesses. They were growing fast. There was opportunity to get involved in different things. Actually, I started a sustainability initiative there. And it was when I moved to a slightly smaller company, and I'd had so much experience at lastminute.com from being part of their exec team, seeing people at the top of their game on how they did marketing or logo or branding stuff. I was able to just have points of view on different things that were going on at Vistaprint, so the company I joined who were much smaller, who didn't have that bandwidth of you know, people at the top of their game. That's some amazing people there, but real, real leaders that lastminute.com haven't been around for a decade or so. It was different. But because I've been there, I could have opinions. Those opinions were, were good. People listened to them. And then all of a sudden, you're starting to have more influence over different parts of the business that you weren't really expecting to. And because it was growing so fast, the boss at the time, a lady called Janet Hollyan, she just started to ask me to get involved in more and more different aspects of what they were doing. And I think I got involved with some marketing decisions, but also got involved with, she asked me to figure out how to build a call center for us somewhere in Europe. It actually turned out to be in Tunisia, we built a call center, but building a call center meant finding land, designing a building, building the building, and then filling up the 400 people. Pretty much when you take on that project, you're not a lawyer anymore. But the transition then starts coming. If you can start solving things for people, the transition starts. So get involved, go in-house. If you're a lawyer at a private practice, go in-house and then get involved with more things. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. That's really, really interesting. And do you think, not being a lawyer for a little while now, but oh, I do, But I guess that you're always a lawyer to some extent. I guess that training never leaves you. So in your founder journey to date, do you still think with your lawyer hat on? And if so, how does that manifest itself? Yeah, there's definitely some parts. So there's, and I don't know what law firms are like these days, but there's a hardworking thing that just comes from being a lawyer in private practice where I think my first day as a trainee, I was there till 5 a.m. It's like it was a bit like mental. I, I don't know if that still happens. If it does, I, I hope it doesn't still happen. But there's a hardworking ethic that comes from that, which um, I think any entrepreneur, it's just a given. And then the other piece is it, it just turns up in the details. So when I look at our app, I'll look at like what's the photo being used? Why is that being used? What placement it has? What's behind it? And you go into a level of detail that just beyond that surface level, Again, you don't have to be a lawyer to do that, but I think that that detail analysis it really comes into play. And the last piece is just creativity. So, laws always had this, I guess, this perception as accountants of being you know fairly boring and dull. And lots of it is viewing long, long contracts is bloody boring. But how you write a contract actually you can be quite creative about. And um, always thought you can be really creative in that job, even if it's you know something that's potentially mundane. Actually, any job you can be creative in how you do it, and that definitely still plays a part in, in on hand. Oh, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing. I feel like we've teased our audience enough, but we've got to come on and talk about On Hand because it's, uh, if anyone that hasn't come across business, it's a wonderful company and you're doing a really important work. So before we come on to what the business does, tell us a bit about where the inspiration came from, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So I worked in tech now for about 20 odd years uh, prior to On Hand and I quit my last job 2017, last big job in tech. And at that point, I wasn't quite sure what to do next. It was, hey, I can do a bit of consulting. I can probably find bits and pieces to do that will re- replace salary for a while. What do I really want to do? And I definitely didn't want to jump back into another high-growth tech company, making money, doing something. That had been my last 20 years, I guess, with Vistaprint and then last LastMinute.com and a, a travel tech company before that. So I wasn't really sure. And then... I came across on hand, the concept wasn't mine. It was a bunch of charities that work with an incubator. 
And the concept was, hey, how do you create this on-demand volunteering to solve lots of society problems? And at the time, personally, I was going through some personal pain with my dad. He lived in London. I was, I'd, I'd moved to Brighton. He was getting to the age where he couldn't quite pick up his own shopping. Always been a really independent guy, now in his 70s, but Parkinson's had set in and he couldn't carry the bags. I was struggling with, well, how do we get his shopping? And he was lucky. He lived in a block that's got uh, carers on site. And so professional carers started doing the shopping for him. And that's wonderful, other than the price, right? So he's a single guy. His shop was like 10 to 12 pounds a week. And all of a sudden, it was like 30, 40 pounds a week because professional carers are wonderful, but they are expensive. And so it was you know, 20 pounds an hour plus VAT plus his shop. And there's many things professional carers do really, really well. Do you really need them to pick up your shopping was the question I guess I was looking at. And when on hand came along with this idea that you could find a local volunteer to help with really basic tasks. It felt like, well, that's great. Solves my problem, but potentially it can solve a problem for hundreds of thousands or millions of people across the UK and then beyond. Is there something in that? And that once that kernel got in my mind, I actually couldn't stop thinking about it. I was thinking about it seven days a week before actually joining on hand. I love the, the personal connection there. And actually for me, it really, it strikes a chord because my grandfather had Parkinson's and I remember the toll that took on my grandmother and the family and and a wonderful number of carers that looked after him for for a number of years but there's no doubt it was expensive and um i think just having something like this it's a shame you know this wasn't around 20 years ago when he was going through all that because uh, i could really see you can see the use case how it will be you're completely transformative i love it tell us a bit more about what the business is today like how does it work for anyone that is probably kind of itching to learn more for anyone in their family that might be uh, interested Today, we're a, a B2B offering to any business to say, hey, how do you engage your employees in doing social and eco good? And it's about being as easy as possible. So we're app-based, which means on your phone, you can see opportunities to do something good or you know, in society, in your local community, or taking eco action, but it's based on your location. So you can find someone to help or a charity to give to you know, immediately in your vicinity. And what that does is it opens up the possibility of you know, micro actions. And what I mean by that is, hey, you can do something good in 15 minutes. You can do something good in half an hour or less. Instead of the traditional way of volunteering, which is you know, take a half day or a full day out of the office to go and do some team bonding volunteering. I'm not saying that's not good. That is really good, but it's also really hard to do. And a lot of people struggle to find the time to do it. So how do you get people involved in doing good every month, every week, almost every day? Well, make it tiny, make it on your doorstep and make it super accessible, which the app helps to do. So yeah, we get some great engagement stats because of that. Love that. Now, I'm sure we're going to get lots of, I hope, floods of uh, interest from companies listening to this, of, of founders and exec leaders, because uh, it is, the truth is, you know, at JBM, you know, we really want to pay it forward and really want to help it, but it is difficult to coordinate some of this stuff. So this is solving a big problem. You've obviously had like a whirlwind five years since you started the business. What has been the, the personal highlight for you? Personal highlight is, is probably the same as prior roles where it's, it's about the team, right? So watching wonderful individuals grow, have incredible impact and a massive direction on where we're going. It's huge. And there was a moment, I can't remember, it was 2022, or it might have been earlier, where we won Great Entrepreneur Awards, uh, Tech for Good Award. And we beat out like just giant competition, giant, giant competition. You know, the leaders in Tech for Good. And we won. At that point, was it wasn't me. <laughs> it wasn't me. The, the award was an individual award, sure. But it, there was no way that it was me that won that award. It was the team. And the things the team had done to progress personally and then the effort and passion they put into on hand had won us that award. 
And I remember speaking to the team afterwards around what's beautiful at this moment is a year ago, I may have been you know, the best employee for doing X, Y, Z. And I can no longer say that across the board. And this is now a couple of years ago where we've got you know, outstanding people in marketing, we've got outstanding people in customer success. Technology has always been a place we've had great, great people and now sales as well. And it was just a wonderful reflection of how we'd won the award, but it was, it was the people, it was the team that won it. So yeah, that was the huge moment for me. Oh, that's incredible. They say it takes a village, don't they? And it's clearly a team that doing some incredible work alongside your fantastic leadership. I guess on the flip side, Sanjay, what have you found that's been difficult, unexpectedly difficult for you as a founder when building on hand? Or is there anything that you would maybe do differently if you had your time again? Yeah, two things. So there's uh, lots of founders talk about this, but it's so true that the stress level of being a founder is completely different. And I don't think I appreciated that prior to starting on hands. I've worked in big companies, usually setting up something new. And that was the direction I went in at Vista You're setting up a new business unit, setting up a new initiative, but with the backing of a, of a bigger business. Doing it yourself, wow, the stress level's like, it's so much higher. And it's probably not until the last year or so where I'm not always thinking about what's ahead. Can we afford to pay payroll, you know, in three months, five months, whatever it is. If we can't afford to pay payroll in that time frame, what are you going to do about it? Well, you have to cut costs. How do you cut costs? And that nightly thinking about how you do it, wow, the stress level of being on the hook for, you know, your first five employees, your first 10 employees, your first 15, 20 employees, you, you're on the hook for making sure you're paying them next month, three months, six months time from now. And having to think about the terrible scenarios and how you'd play it if you actually can't afford to make that payroll in six months' time, what are you going to do? As well as the pressures of growing the business and finding new customers and all that you know, day job stuff, the stress level is just ginormous. So it feels like that's the massive learning. Incredibly different from, you, know, you always see these posts about, hey, I've worked at Google, I'll be able to do this stuff. No, you won't. It's so, so different from working in big tech. So that's that's the big thing. Would I do anything differently? Yeah, I would. I'd probably have a co-founder, and for that learning on on stress levels, we got wonderful employees, and they massively care about the business. But the reality is, as a founder, you have a different level of needing this business to work and success, and that stress level of being responsible for your employees. And um, if you can share that with a co-founder, I think that's absolutely the way to go. For what I do with a tech startup. Uh, the ideal co-founder is, you know, someone who, who would complement the skill set I have. I'm not a techie. So a, a co-founder who was a techie, that would have been like huge. If I could go back and co-found with a techie, that would have been massive. As a solo founder myself, I can relate to a lot of what you said. And I've definitely at times thought a co-founder could have been super, super helpful. I really appreciate you sharing. I'm sure there are others listening to this that might might need to hear that today. So appreciate it. Um, just a quick one on the, the stress point. And um, again, I think all founders listening to this will relate. How do you manage stress? How do you deal with that? Because it's something that doesn't really go away, does it? I guess it, it may be there's different spikes of stress, perhaps, depending on the situation of the business, but it is always there. How do you control that? Yeah, it's a really good question, and it's really hard to answer. So maybe I'll go backwards slightly and just talk about stress in itself. So for the first few years, and I remember this was like year two, I had like physical reactions I've never had. I'm 47. I've never had these reactions before in my life, and I've been a lawyer, been in very high stress scenarios, negotiating deals, high pressure stuff, lots of high workload, all of that kind of normal, not normal, but high stress work scenarios. What happened to me in the first 12, 24 months of on hand is I broke out in hives. I was getting lumps all across my body based on the stress. And I started recognizing it because it started small 
and I could recognize it was stress-related. I mean, I, I started looking at why am I getting this stuff and then very quickly found out, it's, hey, it's stress-related. And I think the reality of a startup is the stress levels are, are giant and they go on for a number of years, a number of years. So we're four years in, almost five years in. It's only in the last year, 18 months, where you get to a level where we're doing okay, we're going to survive and the stress and, and people we have are, are phenomenal where you can start stepping back uh, somewhat from that stress. So how do you deal with that stress? You've got to find a way. So for me, and it's, again, it's really difficult in that initial period, but for me, it was, I've got three kids. They're wonderful. Spending time with them is immense. So how do you find the time to spend time with them is the secret. Also exercise, exercise is huge. And I think in the first couple of years, massively sacrificed like doing that, finding the time to do it. And I think there's some truth to if you want your startup to succeed, ah, there's some horrible sacrifices, horrible sacrifices in the first few years to get it to the place where it's going to survive. So true. And ironically, in order to be the best leader and to have the success, you also have to look after yourself and manage your stress levels and do things that make you happy, like see your kids. It's a funny old thing, isn't it? Because just like me, I spent the first two, three, four years at JBM overworking, getting stressed, burning out, getting ill, looking like death literally i've looked back a bit to myself oh my god i'm you know look horrible and it's all this warped thing of i've just got to give it everything and sacrifice everything because i want to provide and i want it to be a success and actually by changing the way you work and prioritizing quality time with family and looking after your mental and physical health it's amazing how you can actually be much more effective but it takes some time sometimes to get there and it doesn't mean you don't have to put in the all-nighter still at times and and have those really stressful days. But I think it's good that we're talking about it. Yeah, totally. So thank you for sharing that. And for anyone listening, hey, you'll get through it, right? So exactly. the thing about that is reality for a founder that you will get through it. And the, the big point is you've got to care enough about the thing you're doing. So you'll get through it if you care enough about the thing you're doing and you'll get there. hundred uh, percent. Thank you. Yeah, it's so true. I want to talk about volunteering. It's obviously a simple and super effective form of giving back. How can businesses benefit from making volunteering opportunities more accessible for their teams? And what advice do you have for any leaders that who haven't introduced company-wide volunteering days yet? What, why should they? Yeah, sure. It's lots of different trends here. So I'll, I'll try and pick up on a few. One step back is most companies already do offer a, a volunteering policy or pay time off. So the stat is like 70% of the FTSE 100 do give their staff uh, pay time off to go and volunteer. The problem is it's really badly used, right? So typically the average company, it's somewhere between like 5 and 14%. So if you're doing over 10%, actually you're doing really, really well. Typically it's lower. It's going to be in those low single digits, uh, somewhere you know, lower, uh, less than 10% of your workforce actually uses that time, which means there's hundreds of hours of paid time off to go volunteer that aren't used, which is the, the opportunity. The opportunity for on hand is to try and tap into that vast amount of volunteering time to do some real impact stuff on social good. So as a business, what's the benefit? There's lots of studies on this. There was a recent one from the Oxford University Wellbeing Research Lab, where they looked at all of the wellbeing initiatives going on. There's so many at this point, right? The market's been slightly flooded by them. And what they concluded is there's very little evidence to support that any of them actually work. Any of the interventions that many of us and we on hand have also tried for wellbeing it sounds like I'm biased here. I'm clearly biased, but the study, I mean, it's an Oxford University study. But what they concluded, the one, the one that they do think uh, was beneficial and drives the most amount of positive well-being was, was volunteering because there's a massive sense of belonging that comes from volunteering. The benefits for you, hey, you get to retain staff, you get to attract new staff, 
And the background behind that is the rise of responsible business. Uh, I think everyone's seeing you know, the rise of B Corps, the rise of impact reports, the need for you as a business to show that you're delivering back on the eco front, but also in your local communities. That's huge. And it's not just your customers. It's not just your investors and board. It's your employees that want to see that kind of thing coming to the fore. Uh, we're an easy way to do that, essentially. Yeah, I love it. What is the grand plan for on hand? Where do you ultimately want to take the business? And when do you feel you'll be able to sit back and go, we've done it, we've achieved it? Yeah, that's a toughie, right? So I've often thought about that. So when is it done? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. And I'm sure you're probably the same. When is it done? Probably It's probably never done, right? So what do we want to do? We want to solve social and eco issues. Well, that's just an ongoing thing where at any moment you can turn on the news and there's some new disaster somewhere. And so for us, it's about how do we increase the ways people can give and have impacts. And so right now, hey, you can volunteer with us. You can take eco actions. That's fantastic. We want to broaden that to support more causes and crisis events. Hey, when the war in Ukraine started, we had a number of different things you could do to educate yourself, to donate to the right spots, to give your time in useful ways. And that was one of the most impactful things we did in terms of the amount of people that got involved, the amount of time that was given. And so we, we started to realize, okay, people care about the things they can do in local communities, but they also really care about causes and crises that are going on all the time. So how can we get more involved with that? How can we get more involved with how you financially give? So we do donations of stuff today, but what about if you want to donate? What if you want to do payroll giving? Those are the types of things we'll be introducing. Hopefully by the time this is released, actually, we, we will have introduced already. So financial giving is the, the next piece for us. And so it goes from being a volunteering platform to one that is... How do you give back in all the different ways you can give back as a business or as an individual? This podcast is brought to you by JBM, a values-driven executive search firm that specializes in connecting world-class general managers, COOs, and commercial and marketing leaders into the fastest growing startups and scale-ups and top-tier VCs on a permanent, fractional, interim, and advisory basis. But JBM are not your typical search firm. We focus on long-term relationships rather than transactional interactions, whilst also creating events and content, just like this podcast, to inspire and connect talent everywhere. So, whether you're looking for world-class diverse talent for your team, or if you're looking for your next startup leadership role, our team would absolutely love to chat to you. So head over to jbmc.co.uk to find out more or drop us a line on info at jbmc.co.uk. But for now, back to more insights from today's 40-Minute Mentor. 2023 has been a fantastic year for you and the business. I guess a big part of that has been going on Dragon's Den and getting investment from some fantastic dragons. I'm sure everyone listening to this has heard of the show, but I know they'll kill me if I don't ask. What was that experience like? What was it like behind the scenes? Is there is there anything you can share with us around uh, all that good stuff, that experience? Sure, yeah. I love talking about it. And uh, hey, it's been great for us. So um, the first thing is uh, they approached us, which was huge. It wasn't something we brought about doing. They approached us and that was lovely. Uh, immediately said yes, um, would, would love to go on. And you have to record a video. So you have to kind of do a pitch, record the video, send that to them. And that's going to be your pitch on the day, right? So it's going to be your pitch on the day. So done that. It's gone through their vetting process. They like the pitch and all that kind of stuff. 
you go the night before, it's recorded in Manchester. You've got to get to their studio at about seven in the morning. So you're up pretty early and all that kind of stuff. I get to the studio and you're waiting around, probably waiting a couple of hours before anything really starts. And then you get in front of the producers and the producers say, hey, do your pitch. <laughs> so I uh, did my pitch. And so the producers immediately said, well, that's not going to work for TV. <laughs> I was like, okay, uh, what does that mean? And, and they said, well, go away, rewrite it. So this was actually great for me because I'm probably, if I over-rehearse, I mess it up because I'll be thinking about the different things I've got to say and I'll forget something and then go off track. And I'm bad when I over-rehearse. So this was great for me. I had to rewrite the pitch that morning and you know, deliver it an hour later. I don't have time to get nervous. So you, because you're doing it that way, you, you're not dwelling on stuff. You're just getting on with it. And so, uh, yeah, I had to rewrite the pitch on that morning and then just do it, which was really cool. Other things to let you know, um, I don't, can I say this? The lift isn't real. The lift isn't real. <laughs> so you, it's basically a door, a door that opens, the lights go up, <laughs> and then the doors open on the other side. The lift isn't real. That was huge, huge for me. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that. Sorry, BBC, if that's a secret that I've signed to say I wouldn't say it. And then the other thing is they're all lovely. They're all actually lovely. And obviously they edit it. They look like, you know, bastards that want to take people apart, but they're not, they're really not. They are lovely. They make you feel really welcome and they try their best to make you feel relaxed and give you tips and pointers and stuff. So yeah, very cool experience. That's so great. That's lovely to hear as well. And getting investment from four out of the five dragons, I mean, that is a a pretty spectacular performance. I mean, how did that feel when you heard that? And how has the actual experience been with working with the dragon since? Is there any you've been particularly close to or anything, you know, that's been particularly memorable about working with them that you can share with the audience? Getting the four offers, obviously huge moments. And if I look back, I probably didn't plan (laughs) that scenario I think I planned as far as how to pitch, what kind of questions, and you know, if we were lucky enough to get an offer, take it, because that probably meant you'd make a show and stuff. And that's as far as I got. So when you got four, it's like, okay, what do I do now? And there's plenty of stuff that wasn't on the show. So after getting the four offers, it's okay, there's, there's probably room to negotiate here. And I probably tried some negotiating, a lot of which wasn't shown on the show. And uh, there was a piece where the raise we were doing, we were doing a raise outside of the den for a lot more money. And so there was a whole discussion, which wasn't the show about how, hey, look, I have to get this past our VCs. Uh, they're coming in with a pretty big check. How am I going to justify the, a lower valuation? Can you tell me what you'll commit to? And uh, the answer I got very quickly from, I think it was Deborah, we don't commit to anything. <laughs> it was like, okay, I'm going to give you a better offer. And uh, we'd have to take that through the VCs later. But the cool thing about after the show is um, they stayed in contact. And they and what I realized is, hey, I'm going to say yes now, but we're going to stay in contact and I'll be able to discuss this with you and the VCs to negotiate to a, you know, a better outcome that everyone's going to be happy with. And Deborah and Stephen in particular, you were mentioning, hey, what's it like to work with them? Deborah and Stephen in particular, like personally follow up, which is huge. And then you have meetings with them. So their level of interest was just super, absolutely super. Amazing. Sounds like a fantastic experience. Would you encourage other founders listening to this to go on Dragon's Den? Sounds like something you haven't, you certainly haven't regretted. So yeah, any advice for anyone else thinking about signing up? Yeah, totally. Um, so if you get the opportunity to do it, absolutely do it. We didn't apply again. They, they approached us. But either way, take the opportunity if you're approached or if you think, hey, we should apply. Take the opportunity. The exposure level is extraordinary. You won't get that through anything else, anything else you're doing at this stage in your business in all likelihood. So giant exposure 
I can't remember how many leads came through, but it was you know, way over a thousand leads, uh, hundreds of demos, many, many new customers, many, many customers of a size that we weren't particularly attracting before enterprise level size customers. My worry going on the show was people perceive us as as small startup because you know Dragon's Den is you know very early stage businesses, but it was almost the opposite reaction where TV gave us validity, and so large organisations, tens of thousands of employees were comfortable approaching us because we've been on Dragon's Den. So yeah, so huge advocate. Please do um, if you're thinking about it. Yeah, go for it. I love that. And how did you handle that? sort of huge spike of interest and and also media attention i'd imagine everybody wants a piece of you in the the aftermath of that which is is obviously lovely in one way but also could be quite distracting and difficult in another so how did you handle that any do's or don'ts for anyone else that might be going through that sort of experience at the moment so we we've got again we've got a great team so the head of Bragenstein we'd thought about um I mean, we were all we there, not me. The <laughs> Kaz, our marketing leader, Vinny, our sales leader, had thought about, well, how are we going to change the site? What are we going to do for, you know, our site? It essentially, is a funnel to book a demo. What if 7 million people go on and book a demo? So we funneled them into a slightly different experience and how you book into webinars. And so took hundreds of people through hundreds at a time of people started attending webinars which then led into a different sales process. So we upfront thought about how to deal with the volume and the volume did come. So again, totally recommend it for anyone else. And on media attention, the big thing for us is about relationships. So we have, and like VCs as well, we've developed relationships with media folks and VCs, which we won't use for long periods of time. And potentially it's a year or years where you've maybe on LinkedIn connected into someone not try to sell them on anything, but uh, you've kind of got an interest or relationship or they've approached you over at some point, but you don't actually have anything for them. But how do you then feed little bits and pieces to them over a period of time where in a year's time you can use that relationship or there's a mutual benefit that, that arises? That's the thing for the do's and don'ts. It's, it's build relationships. Sandy, before we wrap up, I wanted to just touch upon the amazing achievement of being uh, awarded an MBE for the impact on hand has had throughout the pandemic, particularly, uh, you know, a hugely valuable resource to so many people and a really amazing achievement. So how did you feel about that recognition? I can't imagine, you know, there'll be many other, many more proud days in your life. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's surprising. So I didn't know the process. The process is you've got to be nominated. Someone's got to nominate you. And actually, I, I've never been able to figure out who did the nomination. I approached a whole bunch of people I thought would have done it, said thank you, and it was none of them. <laughs> I don't really know who did the nomination, which is kind of cool. And then you look at something like that and you go to Buckingham Palace and parents and stuff are super proud and so is the team and all of that kind of cool stuff. Yeah, it's massive. It's massive. I, I've never, you know, I'm not a royalist or anything like that, but the recognition level you get from it, the people that then, it opens doors for the business, it's open doors. Probably the, the coolest thing is um, my kids love it. My kids love it. So that was very cool. Look, we spent a lot of this conversation reflecting on the journey of how you've got to where you are now. But before we kind of get to our last two wrap-up questions, I just wanted to ask about what's on the horizon for the next 12 months and particularly um, you know, any exciting things you've got coming up, but also any hiring plans. Uh, we want to make sure that you get the right types of talent to apply. So any tips for them as well would be awesome. A few things going on for us. One is, um, as I mentioned before, we're... we're we're thinking about the products and how we expand it to cover all types of giving, in particular financial giving. So we cover everything your company wants to do for ESG type of thing. And then I guess when we think about hiring, we're on a really good trajectory at the moment on growth. Dragon's Den certainly helps. It was a massive catalyst in part of that growth journey this year. 
but it's continued. We're on our road to profitability in the next 12 months. That's super exciting for us. Uh, definitely that road to break even is really clear for us. And then over that period of time, we are looking at um, lead volumes that we have are, are huge. They're really, really good. That reflects how where society is and where businesses are needing to be more responsible. And that, that's just great. So many businesses coming to us at this point. And so to handle that volume, we're thinking about our sales team and how do we expand that sales team, both at the SDR and AE level. And then we'll be looking at our account management processes as well. And then we're always in the background looking at, at tech highs too. Tech's our, our largest team today. The tips for folks, um, and I often get approached directly from people inquiring about uh, roles that we post or, or speculatively. And the tip is, that's great. You could feel free to approach me. But really, I'm very unlikely to be the hiring manager or the first point of call for getting through to late stages of hiring, you know, Getting past that first barriers is the number one thing you can do when you seek that job. So who's that? It's probably don't just follow me, follow on hands so you see when jobs are out there. But go and follow some of our leaders if you're interested in one of those sales roles. It's not me that's going to be looking at the CVs. It's going to be our sales leader. So hey, easy enough to figure out who that is and, and follow them. And the same across tech or marketing or whatever it is. Follow those leaders back to the relationship point. Try and build a relationship over time. Great advice. Thank you. Um well, we're sadly at uh, the wrap-up question, Sandra. It's been a really enjoyable conversation, um, but you are unfortunately mentor, so I have to ask, if you could be mentored by anyone, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Yeah, I love this question. So I was reflecting, I, I'm lucky to have had so many great bosses throughout my career, and, and actually unusually, I think, female bosses, female bosses throughout my career who've done incredible things themselves and, and helped develop me along the way. And then I was thinking about, well, who now is someone like Tessa Clark at Olio? who I've met a couple of times and is just, just phenomenal. I think she's been on the show, right? So the, the podcast she does are just fantastic. And her insights are amazing. But why, why Tessa, as well as being like awesome human, clearly incredible business leader, what she's doing in Tech for Good, she is the trailblazer. Olio are the trailblazing business in Tech for Good. How they've gone to millions of users worldwide, every country you can think of, and then keep expanding the product. Wow. Just absolute wow. So yeah, Tessa or, or Sasha at, at Odie. Great answers. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of uh, getting to know both of them. And um, Tessa, this, you are the second person I think that's actually called. Uh, we often get billionaires and... But actually, Tessa, this is the second time in a few matter of months that Tessa's been called out. And I think that says so much about the impact she's having and what a great leader she is. So as a 40-minute mentor alumni, it gives us a great pleasure to hear that because uh, we know her story uh, has been listened to a lot of people and is really resonating. So that's awesome to hear. Finally, oh yeah, we need to ask you, of course, uh, we get to our roulette question. This is new for this series where we uh, get a mystery question from our, our listeners. So please choose one, two, or three, and we'll see what they've got for you. I'll go for one, please. Okay. What advice do you have for someone looking to start their volunteering journey? Okay. So behind the scenes, I guess, volunteering is actually really hard to do. It's why, again, on the hand, wasn't my idea. It was the charities. And they realize that volunteering is hard because as an individual, you've got to go out and find the opportunity. You've got to apply. Charities are busy and can be really slow. So you may hear back quickly. Fantastic. You may hear back in a week or a month or two months or actually never. <laughs> and then once you hear back, you've typically got to apply for a DBS check or do training. And that's weeks and weeks of training. And then you might, at the end of those training, be offered an opportunity to volunteer if you can commit to the same time every week for the next six months. So the barriers to actually volunteer are tough. 
So how do you start volunteering? I think you have to go through that pain. So you have to recognize what's the area that you want to have impact in. So you, you care enough to go through the pain of having to wait or having to go through all that training and all that kind of stuff. But it's worth it, right? If that's the area you care about, that that's worth it. This is assuming you don't have something like on hand that solves that problem. But as an individual, yeah, it's getting going in the cause that you really care about. If it's a question from a business, it's, it's how do you make that so much easier for your people? And that is, you know, we're not the only people doing this, but it's something like on hand that just makes that process as easy as possible, literally on people's doorsteps, on demand. That is actually, we are the only people doing it on demand. But um, it's how do you make it as easy as possible? Amazing. And yeah, I hope lots of our listeners will be checking on handouts straight after this because it certainly is a really easy way to start having an impact really. Amazing. Thank you, Sanjay. And finally, if there is one piece of advice you'd like to leave our listeners with today, what would it be? Yeah, I was thinking about this and there's a few answers, but it does wrap up to it like one final one. But the first few concepts playing around, but the first one is, hey, there's no no substitute for hard work. And that's been a given throughout my career and led to where I am now. But um, hard work in itself, I was thinking about that too. It's like, okay, nothing great gets achieved without hard work, got all that, great, but but what's the point? Why why work for that hard work? Well, it, it leads to opportunity. And I've had many of those come up across my career. It was you know, the hard work I did back in that travel company led to being off that top job at lastminute.com. Being the like, GC at lastminute.com meant I was approached by headhunters every month, every week, whatever it was. So many opportunities came from the hard work that got me that, that position in the first place. But that's not the point either. The point then is, once you have those opportunities in front of you, you've actually got really hard decisions to make. And again, I'll reflect on one when I was at lastminute.com. You know, I'm, I'm running the legal team at lastminute.com. This is one of the best jobs in legal, in e-commerce, like in Europe. It's like one of the best jobs. Why would I leave? <laughs> but I got approached by this startup in Barcelona. And it's like, okay, all right, that sounds really, really interesting. And then you're into how do you balance decision-making, right? So I'm now thinking about the hard choice of leading what is one of the best jobs in Europe for a lawyer in in e-commerce to go move to a startup that I think is going to be successful, so risk. Moving country, wow, that's scary. So it leads to hard decisions. Opportunity means hard decisions that that you have to take. And the big point I think here is, is believe in yourself. The takeaway for anyone listening is, hey, have faith in yourself. Decisions are hard. Try and make them, try and stick to them, but believe in yourself fundamentally on all of those aspects through hard work to opportunity to decision making, believe in your choice. Wonderful advice. It's been a wonderful conversation, Sanjay. Thank you for taking the time and being such a great fortunate mentor. Really, really appreciate your time and uh, wish you all the very best for the year ahead. Thank you very much, James. Absolute pleasure to be on. Cheers. That's all from us today, but do make sure you check out the links in the show notes for more on today's 40-Minute Mentor. And if you have any recommendations for future guests, then why don't you drop our Head of Marketing and 40-Minute Mentor producer, Hannah, a line on hannah at jbmc.co.uk. Thank you so much for your ongoing support, and I look forward to seeing you again next week for more pocket-sized mentorship. Mm-hmm.